Hello and welcome to the Bikes for Death podcast. My name is Patrick and I am your host. And today's guest is Bailey Newbury. He is most well known for his 2018 Tour Divide run where he took second overall on a single speed and obviously took first in the single speed category. Um, that was the year that Louis Sador won. And uh, so it was fun to talk about him chasing potentially first place overall on a single speed. Um, and we talked about a lot more than, than just that, but that's certainly what he's most well known for. Uh, and recently he, well, I say recently, about a year ago, he opened up a new bike shop in Santa Fe, New Mexico called Sincere Cycles. And that's where I caught up with him. I got a chance to hang out in his shop during business hours. And uh, every once in a while we were interrupted by a, a customer that would walk in. Um, but it was actually no problem at all. It was pretty cool to get to see him interact with people and just get a good vibe for the shop and for him. Really excited that I got a chance to catch up to him. I uh, heard a lot of good things from different people before I went and met with him, and uh, it didn't disappoint. Really cool guy, sincere guy, you could say, uh, and a really amazing cyclist. So I quite enjoyed the conversation, and I can't wait to share it with you. All right, well, before we get to the show, just a reminder that this show is 100% listener-supported. There are no advertisers that are going to chime in and tell you what product you absolutely cannot live without. Uh, but yeah, no no advertisers on the show, just me uh, delivering the, the guests and the messages and the stories that I am passionate about and I'm interested in. So if you'd like to support the show, uh, do me a favor, head over to bikesordeath.com. There's lots of ways you can support the show. Uh, merchandise is fully stocked. We were a little bit backordered with all the COVID stuff going on, but uh, we regained some normalcy. Everything's back in stock. Um, a reminder that Bikes or Death is now uh, donating 1% of all of its proceeds to Bikepacking Roots Adventure Grant Program for BIPOC. And uh, also the... COVID coronavirus, i.e. pandemic, is still going on, which means the fuck coronavirus sale is still going on as well. So uh, at checkout, use the code C19, and that'll take 19% off your order. Please and thank you. Uh, and also, you could just leave a uh, one-time donation there if you think this or another episode is really good, and you're like, hey, I'd like to sling a couple dollars his way. That's cool, too. If you can support the show, it's much appreciated. And as always, please do me a favor, head over to iTunes and leave a five-star review. We are almost to 300 reviews, which is really exciting. I'm kind of blown away by all the nice comments and ratings and all that. It is the best way to promote the show and to help other people find it. So again, thank you all for, for that. And that's enough for me. Again, thank you all so much for being here. And uh, without further ado, let's let Miles Arbor take it away with the intro song. You load up your bike, you ride away from home. You could be with your friends or you could be alone. You ride for a day or maybe more. You just love being in the great outdoors. Everything you need is strapped to your bars, including that new pillow you got from Santa Claus. And then you think, oh shit to yourself. You left that super lightweight tent on the living room shelf. Bikes. All right, everyone, I am in Santa Fe, New Mexico, sitting down with Bailey Newberry in his new shop, newest shop, mm -hmm. Sincere Cycles in Santa Fe. 
Um, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here. Great to finally meet you. Uh, this is awesome. I'm so excited to get a chance to talk to you. Well, since we're sitting in your shop, mm-hmm. uh, tell us about it. How long you been here? Tell us about your shop a little bit. Yeah, so I opened up uh, mid-March last year. Um, this is actually the second shop that I've owned. I co-owned a bike shop in Chicago, Comrade Cycles, for six years. Uh, and then when it was finally time to move on and get somewhere with a little better riding and just something a little bit more relaxed and easygoing, ended up coming out this way and opened up the shop. And yeah, been going, uh, let's see, just shy of a year and a half at this point. So why, what put Santa Fe on your radar? So initially I was attracted to Santa Fe coming here to visit a buddy of mine. We went, we did a bike packing trip around the Valle Caldera and I was just really amazed with how easy it was to get out of town and into nature and just the quality of riding here. Um, so it always kind of enamored me and then doing the tour divide twice coming through New Mexico, seeing just kind of everything that's going on, the quality of riding. Um, I really, was pretty into it. So after a couple more visits, decided that this was going to be the spot, did some research to see if there was room for another bike shop Mm. and made my way on out. Right, right. So in that vein, how does your bike shop fit into the cycling scene here? Is it different than the other bike shops? What do you, what do you got going on? Yeah. So I, I certainly try to differentiate myself a little bit from the other shops in town. Don't want to step on anybody's toes, but also want to do something that is more my own passion. So Big part of the focus here is, at least products-wise, is on bikepacking and touring stuff. Um, I try to focus on a lot of smaller manufacturers, people that I've built personal relationships with and stock a lot of stuff that they have to offer. Um, definitely a few other shops that have, have some leanings towards some bikepacking stuff, but making it a little bit more of the front and center focus of the shop is where I think I differentiate myself. Right. And are you a one-man show or do you got employees or... One man operation at this point, um, certainly not opposed to bringing anybody else on thought that I might this year, but then with, uh, COVID and everything else kind of decided that keeping it simple and just working a little extra hard myself was going to be the smartest move for now. Right. When, when did you open? It was like early last year. It was March, uh, March 19th, March, Mar- March 19th, 2019, 2019. Yep. Got it. Yeah. Yep, yep. So, I mean, you, you're in a full solid year, almost to the day when COVID, I don't know when it exactly started here, here, but yeah, pretty damn close. Right. I think it was, uh, two days after my one year anniversary was the shelter in place. <sighs> oh something my like gosh. that. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Did, um, so I don't know how it was here, but was, was by were bicycle shops considered essential business from the get go or how did that go down? Not initially for, I think it was about two weeks. Bike shops were not essential businesses. Um, ended up having a few people at other shops contact people in the governor's office. Somebody gave us the go ahead and said, we were good to go and open two days later. They said, no, whoever said that was not, uh, not speaking on our behalf and you guys can't open. Uh, then some people ended up contacting the press and some, uh, articles in the local newspapers came out. And the day after those came out, the governor changed her mind and bike shops were deemed essential again. Um, it's only been about last three or four weeks that we've been able to allow people in the store uh initially we could be open but repair only nobody coming in the doors um just keeping the doors locked meeting people outside you couldn't sell bikes could well you know so that was kind of the gray (laughs) area so um what was the i think i can't remember what the exact wording uh was but it was 
essential services only. And it, with it being a little bit more vague, I figured selling bikes was not the worst thing. Um, no. It was tough because people weren't like coming in to test ride bikes, but I definitely got a couple out during that time. Yeah, just yeah. figuring like, you know, if somebody needs something so they can get out and about, then I'd right. rather just sell them it. And if the city wants to come down on me for it, so be it. But I didn't expect anything to happen. No, I don't think so. Yeah. Well, we saw a huge uptick, at least in Texas. And I, and everyone I've talked to has seen this, even in like Europe and stuff, they're saying the same thing. Like people are out walking, jogging, riding their mm -hmm. bikes. I mean, they're getting outdoors like never before. Well, not camping and stuff, but you know, they're going right. outside and doing all those kinds of things. So most bike shops, it seems like have really flourished and like have, having a hard time keeping up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's definitely been the case. There's been, you know, between more people getting out on bikes and just people bringing out old bikes that have been sitting in storage for a long time. Bike shops have been in a bit of a boom. Um, the difficulty being that now basic replacement repair parts and, uh, bikes in and of themselves have been just about impossible to get your hands on. So, right able to keep things going with repairs but it's made things a little bit tough i mean getting to the point now where i can't get 26 inch schrader inner tubes i mean there was a couple of weeks where i couldn't get a pump that retailed under 90 bucks um just weird stuff like just, that and that's just from like manufacturers having shutdowns or yeah so it's kind of a weird perfect storm of things so before covid and all that stuff happened there were tariffs that got put on a bunch of products coming in so a lot of manufacturers particularly for bikes brought in a little bit less product uh, expecting that the tariffs would then be lifted and so their second run of things they'd be able to bring in without having to pay extra um, instead they ended up having their factories closed down brought in less product and have more people out on bikes so we kind of got a wow. perfect storm of just like it's not a, a it's lot a problem it's a good problem absolutely i guess i mean yeah. you know it's better than being shut down completely absolutely you, know, you gotta be happy to be open and doing what you can i guess right yep yeah and it's been nice to be able to get people out i mean i think a bulk of what i've been seeing is people pulling out you know their pride and joy mountain bike that they bought 15 years ago and have had packed away collecting dust for the last the 14 years coming in. <laughs> yeah and it's been you know a lot of uh rebuilding suspension on stuff that if you know a seal disintegrates when i'm taking it apart then that's the end of that fork <laughs> and you know weird stuff like that but um it's been great because even in tuning up all those old bikes i'm seeing those people out on the trails then that's awesome so they're not just like oh maybe this might be fun they're actually getting out and yeah. riding and staying active and i i don't know i mean but i i've been wondering what percentage is going to stick you know what what how what percentage of people are going to be like and, and maybe they go back to work and they get busy again and they stop riding, they stop going outside and they get stressed out and start getting fat again. They're like, huh, maybe yep. I should go ride my bike. You know, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I hope there's like a, I hope we see a, a, a growth. Like it could be an opportunity where you see like, you know, parents that start riding and so they get their kids out and then it could, it could potentially be a good thing for the industry. Absolutely. Hopefully. Yeah. And I mean, I think. I think at this point, I'm in, I'm anticipating a lot of these folks who have gotten back out on bikes staying, staying with it. I also think that we're going to see Craigslist full of, <laughs> yeah. you know, bikes for sale that somebody rode for a couple of months and decided, eh, maybe this wasn't as fun as they thought, or like you said, get back to just being busy with everything else. But I do anticipate by and large, we're going to see an increased uh, ridership, at least for the next few years. No, I think it's good. Thank you, Corona. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding um i wanted to ask you about your name sincere cycles yeah where'd that come from uh that came from me on a road trip 
sleeping in the back of my van trying to come up with names and jotting things down in a notebook and just liking liking the sound of it and liking the idea of bikes being this thing that is just very humble very simple very straightforward um and that's kind of where the name sincere came from to a degree um i liked it initially threw it by a good buddy of mine who was i'd say a mentor of sorts he's he owned a really neat bike shop in illinois called north central cyclery for years uh toby de uh, threw it by him and initially he just shut me down entirely. So I abandoned the name, <laughs> tried to come up with something new, ended up having to change it again, came back to it. And then Toby told me he liked it this time. So I went for it. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I mean, the branding is good. I, I, yeah, I, I mean, I didn't know, I guess I was thinking like, yeah, you're, this is something that you're sincere about. Um, you're a sincere guy. I mean, you're putting your heart and soul into it. I mean, it, it's you, it's a representation of, of you. you like you were saying, like, uh, I mean, you're using your bike packing experience and your race experience and you're coming and creating a shop that reflects that. And I, I can imagine, I mean, if I was going to get into fucking bike packing and there, there was a 2018 single speed tour divide winner, uh, with a shop, I would probably go talk to that guy. Yeah, for sure. No, that's, I think that's, that's kind of a big part of it is using my own experience with it and, you know, selling, selling what I know. Um, I've been working in bike shops for 18 years now. Um, it's the only job I've ever had outside of a paper route. So it's kind of <laughs> nice. all I know, but I definitely realized, um, especially with my last shop in Chicago, we got to a point where, you know, we wanted to offer a little bit of something for everybody. We wanted to be there yeah. to say, you know, regardless of how you ride, what you ride, we want to be able to be your shop and help you out. And we were stocking, you know, different road bikes and trying to play around with that and figure out what was going on. And we just kind of got to a point where we realized like, I'm not the person who's going to talk you up to the Durace group from the Altegra group. I really don't care terribly much about that. That's not where my passions lie. And that's not something that I can speak to really with any, not so much with any authority, but more so just, yeah, with any passion. Exactly. And so realizing that when we refocused into more of what we were actually doing and what we enjoyed about cycling, we could have, a more genuine, more sincere conversation with the customers about that. And, uh, that definitely transferred over into coming to Santa Fe and opening the shop here. It's just like, if I can't speak to something passionately, I'm not going to be able to sell it. I'm not going to feel good about yeah. it. And you're not going to feel good about what you get. So offering things that are products that I believe in and services I believe in, I, it's just, uh, makes it easy on you, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Huge difference. Yeah. Instead of selling something you don't believe in, yeah. trying to talk someone into something. I've been in sales my whole life. I mean, outside of podcasting and stuff, it's kind of, you know, what I've done and, uh, you don't, you don't get anywhere, uh, doing it like that. <laughs> no, not at all. I, I relate to that because the, with the podcast, I, I don't talk about gear very much. I, I'm not, I like a good bike, right? But once I have it, it just is a tool to do the thing that I want to do. Yep. It's not to me like bikes are cool. I fucking love them. They're great vehicles, but it's just a bike. Like I'm, I'm trying to get somewhere. I want to, you know, Oh yeah. and, and that's, that's just the way I look at it. And some people get more into the bikes and gear and that's cool too, whatever. But it would be insincere for me to come in here and like pretend that I know what I'm talking <laughs> about or, or care that much. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> and plus I think like, 
you know, bikepacking.com and so many people, others have, uh, have done such a good job, like reviewing all kinds of stuff. It's like, I don't know if there's a, there's a yeah. big need for, for that conversation, you know? Oh, absolutely. I think all that stuff's just been done over so many yeah. times and people already know where to go to get that information. Right. So, I mean, if anything, you just be spreading it thin by trying to delve too much into that kind yeah. of stuff. That's smart. It's smart. I, I mean, the shop here, well, for anyone who hasn't been, uh, it's, it's freaking awesome. It's a good size shop. And it's beautiful, like hardwood floors. It's like a old town, New Mexico rustic feel. Um, it's quite beautiful. Thank you, thank For, you. Yeah, you've done you've it. done a good job. Is this an old bar? It was a bar. Yeah. 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 It was a bar for years. Most recently, it was a coffee shop. It was actually a coffee shop when I first responded to the Craigslist ad looking for the place. Ah. Like the coffee shop was still open and operating. Um, landlord was pretty easy going about it and into the idea of a bike shop coming in here his one stipulation was that i couldn't really change the layout too much so i still have the bar just put my service area behind it uh, i've used some of the seating areas for product displays bike displays that kind of stuff but just kind of worked around the existing space and turned it into my own no yeah i mean it works out great actually it's really sick i want to talk to you about santa fe and why santa fe because you just told me, actually, I didn't know this. John Watson just moved here. Yep. I knew Cass Gilbert was here. You just came here within the last year or so. And so I, I'd like to get a better understanding of what is drawing everyone here. Obviously, it's the cycling community. I don't know. But, yeah, tell me a little bit about what it is that's yeah, sucking yeah. everybody in. So Santa Fe is just it's uh it's got a really unique thing going for it i mean it's kind of it's it's tagline is the city different um and i would say it's definitely so it's very laid back very easy going um new mexico in general uh is jokingly called the land of manana as if you know everything can be put off till tomorrow whatever it is like it's it's just really laid back really really chill in that kind of way I like so that. i think that certainly attracts a certain type of people particularly you know in the bike packing vein and that stuff you know it's just something it's a little bit easier i mean for me having a grand departure from the busyness of living in chicago my entire life previously um Santa Fe seemed like a perfect way to step away from that. It's, you know, only about 80,000 people, so it's still a pretty small town, but right. there's enough going on that you don't feel like you're, you know, losing out on anything or you're not far away from anything. You've also got Albuquerque nearby, um, so if you do need any of the big city stuff, that's only <laughs> Colorado hour drive or away. so. Yeah, I mean, Colorado, you can get, I mean, Southern Colorado in three and a half, four hours, yeah. so pretty quick access to all that. But also just the riding in Santa Fe itself is amazing. I mean, we are bordered by national forest on all sides. I mean, I could drive up to wilderness area in 45 minutes. I can be on my bike from town into the national forest in like half an hour. It's pretty, pretty amazing. We've got two, um, two main networks of in-town mountain bike trails. Oh, um, that I think put us right around 40, a little more than 40 miles, I believe, all in all for in-town trails. Wow. And they're some of the best in-town trails I've ridden in my life. And then from there, you get into the trails that go up into the National Forest and you got another- The paved pass? What's that? The paved pass? Oh, pass? no, no, there's- Because um, we, we came out of the National Forest and getting down to the highway, there was a beautiful yep. paved path. And I was like, I mean, it wasn't on Google Maps or anything like that. It was fairly new, I could tell. Yep. I'm like, fuck yeah. I mean, like, it, was, it was so great. <laughs> totally, yeah. I was that, like, I love I love Santa Fe. <laughs> that, that path is great, too, because there's, uh, it's actually, there, even the road right there is a very common road rider's route, mm -hmm. and it's got a 
big old fat bike lane on it. They just redid all the pavement there. But even that bike path taking you in and out super easy. And then on, uh, so you were in the west side, uh, the west western part of Santa Fe in the National Forest there. And then on the eastern side is where you get to mountains that are higher up. And from town, you can ride <clears throat> single track all the way up into the trails into the National Forest. So oh, I mean, my. I can leave the shop. It's almost three miles on the nose to the first bit of single track. And from there, I can go up into the National Forest and I could be out for 12 hours <laughs> solely on single track. Whoa. Yeah. Like where we're at, we're on the southern edge of the Sangre de Cristo mountain range, okay. part of the Rocky Mountains. So it goes from the south end of Santa Fe, Glorieta Pass, all the way up to Salida is the continuous mountain range. Okay. Wow. All the way up through there. So it's like. I might have ridden it then in Salida when I was there last year. Yeah. Oh, I, yeah. It was the same I, range, huh? Yeah. Same, yeah. same okay. mountain range. It just okay, cool. stretches all yeah, the way. Yeah, I wrote it. Yeah. I know all about it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's, I mean, it's pretty cool just outside of town. I mean, we've got 13,000 foot peaks here. I mean, Santa Fe itself sits at 7,000. So yeah. we're, we're already pretty, pretty high up there. How and cold does it get in the winter? Winter can get pretty cold. Um, I mean, still so, rideable, still rideable for sure. I mean, but I'm also from the Midwest, so that's a little uh, bit, a little yeah, bit yeah, different yeah. there, but like <laughs> where you guys were bike packing yesterday, um, I actually was spent the last six months, um, living in a camper with my girlfriend out there oh, cool. um so we were just moving around between different spots out there um, uh, miles was telling me about that so yeah, you're not there anymore not there anymore okay, no okay. no just got a place in town here cool. um but we, yeah we were out there for six months and throughout the winter we it was november through uh the entirety of april um and it got definitely got pretty cold I mean, there's some, sometimes you're waking up in the morning, we would shut the heat off before going to bed just in case there's no propane leaking in or anything yeah. like that. But I'd wake up and have frozen water every now and again. And, Whoa. you know, had a couple of rides into town in single digits. Mm. Um, so it was pretty cold, but it also warms up pretty quickly. It's like, it's not quite as wintry as like the Midwest where it's winter and it's going to be winter for the entirety of it. Right. You know, it'll get a 40, 50 degree day in there every now and again. Right, so right. No, that's a little, nice. that's a little nice. more tolerable. The weather has to play a factor, you know, I mean, it has to be de like we, we just, I mean, it's what June, I don't even know what today is June 20th something. Yep. Um, yeah. Uh, and I mean, it was, I, I just call that weather perfect. It was 85, a high of 85 and it got down to like 55 at night. And there was a nice breeze all day. And so even when it was hot, see, I'm from Texas. There's so much humidity that you stop and you just sweat. You can't stop. You cannot stop. But here you stop. And it was, it was the craziest thing. One, I didn't sweat hardly at all. But when I did, if I stopped, I would dry out like instantly. Yeah. You know, I'm just like, oh man, this is it's nice. The, yeah. The weather here is pretty fantastic. I mean, we have almost no humidity and I'm from the Midwest and we get pretty bad humidity yeah, too, yeah, yeah. especially like around Chicago being right on the lake and all that. Um, so being out here, it's just, it's a different world. I'll be like, oh wow, it feels kind of humid today. And it's like 10%, <laughs> you know, but it's yeah, just, people don't know <laughs> amazing that like you get so accustomed to that dry heat that all of a sudden you can feel that super low humidity that, you know, in Texas or in the Midwest, if it was 10% humidity, you guys would be rejoicing, you know, it's amazing. <laughs> oh my gosh. But, yes. <laughs> yeah. The weather here, it's pretty, it's pretty moderate because we're at higher elevation. It doesn't get super hot. Like it does in other parts of New Mexico. I mean, even Albuquerque, which like I said, is only about an hour drive away. They're down at 5,000 feet and there's usually like a 10, sometimes 15 degree dif temperature difference there. Um, so like it doesn't get overly hot when it is really hot. You could just go up higher into the mountains and oh, cool off a little solved. bit. Winters <laughs> are usually pretty mild, not a ton of snowfall in town. So it's like, it's 
pretty manageable. Like most of the, you still get four seasons, but you don't get any crazy extremes. Right, right, right. Yeah. Sweet. All right, let's talk a little bit about single speed. Most people will know you probably from 2018. You took second place overall on a single speed, and you took first, obviously, for single speed. So most people will probably know you from that. But I want to talk a little bit about when did you get into single speed Mm -hmm. and why. So single speed, like doing it, um, I guess, competitively, didn't really start until 20... I believe it was 2015. Yeah, 2015. Um, there was one of the one of the first big gravel races in the U.S. The Almanzo was going on, and I'd done that one a couple of times, and wanted to do the 162 mile version of it, um, and had a good buddy of mine, one of my partners from Comrade Cycles in Chicago, Jesse, was building some single speed cyclocross frames, and I told him. If you have me a frame by the time this event is going on, then I'm going to do the 162 mile single speed. Having never done any big rides like that single <laughs> speed before, I just thought like, yeah, that'd be, that'd be fun. Um, things got busy and he didn't end up finishing the frame up. So I just single speeded another bike that I had uh, and the idea stuck and the idea stuck. Yeah. I rode, rode the event and did pretty darn well really surprised myself i think i finished almost 10 hours on the dot for 162 miles and something like 12,000 feet of climbing um felt really good with it and just kind of kept things going to the point where it ended up becoming a bit more of a serious focus instead of just like oh this will be a funny thing to do just to mix it up for a different event yeah um and so at first it was i mean here's the thing like i I actually just first uh this year i got my first single speed or build up one of my back single speed I always thought I was like, why? Like we got cures, you know, like what, what, <laughs> what are you guys doing? Yep. <laughs> but, uh, I had an interview with, um, Vince Colvin who owns Chumba and he's a big single speeder. And, uh, anyway, he, he kind of talked me into trying it and, and I, I grew to really love it, especially in Texas where it's so flat. Um, only having one gear actually, you know, you get a little bit of better workout and you're actually having oh, yeah. to stand up and pedal. And it, so it makes riding in Texas more dy- dynamic. However, I don't have the interest to come to New Mexico <laughs> on my single speed. Yeah, and that's that's fair. I mean, single speeding out here, uh, especially like on the mountain bike trails, gets gets pretty tough. I mean, it's we've got some really tough, really steep climbs. Like one of the popular loops out of town, I was just out on and had my Garmin on, which I don't often uh, ride with, and checked the grade on one of the steeper sections of the trail, and it's like forty-two percent. Um, granted, that's only for a short bit but like single speeding here can be can be pretty difficult but at the same time it's also really rewarding when you can settle into a long climb and just kind of get that rhythm going and keep moving it feels pretty amazing um it's actually been funny you mentioned john moving here when he came to town he went out on a ride for uh i think it was one of the shop rides he came out on and it just so happened that there were like three of us on single speeds there which is not the predominant setup for most people in New Mexico. Uh, but John saw that and not having much other exposure was like, wow, I guess everybody in Santa Fe just rides single speeds. <laughs> so decided that he wanted me to turn his retro trek into a single speed. So he's been getting out with us on, uh, on that. And it's been, it's been kind of cool seeing people move towards that a little bit more hoping, you know, feel like I have a little bit of, a little bit of influence on that. Yeah. But it's been, uh, it's been cool, but it's it's definitely a little bit more challenging on some of the terrain out here. So, do you know why you ride single speed? I mean, what like what what attracts you to it? Oh man, I don't know. I think the first time that I did the Tour Divide in 2016, 
simplicity was really the idea. I just thought keeping keeping the bike a little little more simple, less to go wrong, not having to worry about you know chain wearing out or bending a derailleur hanger or anything like that. Um, and at that point, I hadn't been riding single speed too terribly long. It just seemed like it might be a good idea for it, and uh, ended up really enjoying it. I wasn't sure how I would take to riding twenty seven hundred miles <laughs> on one gear, um, but you know you don't. Once you're out there doing it for long enough, you don't even think about it. You don't think about shifting. You don't consider, oh, I wish I had a different gear on because you just have what you have and yeah. you just keep it moving on that. Yeah, but It's like anything else, I guess. I was telling Sarah when we were out yesterday, like one thing I like about bikepacking, I mean, once you leave your car and you're out there, like there, there's, you don't call anybody. Right. <laughs> you just limp back into town or whatever you got to do. And it's the same thing. It's like, okay, this is the gear I got. Yeah. Oh, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's like... I mean, I just had a gentleman in here who was talking about a bike packing trip he's doing and bags that he wants to get and that kind of thing. And he was, he was mentioning like, oh, and there's, you know, you don't want to forget this or that. I'm like, yeah, but once you get out there, that thing that you forgot suddenly becomes very much less important. And it's, you just have what you have and you make do and you figure it out from there. And I think single speeding is very much the same in that. I've been enjoying, I I get it now. I get it now. I don't think I'm probably just not a good enough athlete to, (laughs) to do it. All right. So let's talk, uh, 2016 going into your 2016 tour divide i i think i read that you didn't have any multi-day racing prior to doing that yeah so this was obviously your first longest ultra endurance yeah i'd done i'd done some of the longer gravel rides um like you know 200 plus mile stuff but nothing that was multiple days in a row um but I did come from a background of bicycle touring so mm-hmm. i knew what it was what it was like on my body to be doing you know 80 to 100 miles a day. I didn't know what it was going to be like to be doing 140 miles a day um, over that kind of terrain, though. So that was definitely like a bit of a wake up. Um, I really didn't didn't know much about it going into it, and honestly, didn't do a ton of research. I know some people go really far down the rabbit hole with it. I just kind of got to know where resupplies would be and distances, like particularly between the further ones. So I knew that I had enough with me. But from there, I just kind of figured it out as I went it was a lot of just winging it and hoping for the best and I mean I made it made it down to the border Does that work and- in business too <laughs> <laughs> to a small degree small okay. degree. Um, so you made it to the border made it down to the border and did decent I was 19 days 10 hours so it wasn't a solid, yeah. solid first I mean come on dude. that's <laughs> yeah. that is solid for your first 2700 you pick one gear good luck yeah and it was it was days that's cool it was a learning experience but like i basically got to the end of it and realized oh shit like i'm actually not too bad at this if i went in a little better prepared and with the knowledge that i gained during this ride then maybe i could actually do a little bit better and make something of it so i started focusing more on the the bike pack and the ultra distance stuff yeah um what gear did you choose that first year, the gear? And do you remember in 2016? Yeah. First year I was 32, 17. And how did uh, that, how did that work for you? It was pretty good. It was, um, it was actually a little bit lower than I ended up going later on. Um, it was overall, it was a pretty good gear. It was low enough that it enabled me to do most of the climbs on the route. Um, but almost to, uh, to a bad degree like I was able to climb some things that I should have just gotten off and walked and because of that ended up really hurting my knee and my Achilles pretty early on into the race um, like by the time I got to Brush Mountain Lodge which is just about the halfway point I was limping pretty bad and I couldn't walk upstairs hardly at all felt 
decent on the bike, um, but as soon as I was off the bike moving around, it was terrible. Um, and I really attribute that to having a gear that was low enough that I stubbornly rode shit that I should have just gotten off and walked. Yeah, I understand. Yeah, you you could, so you did, but it burnt you out, and you should have shaved, saved your legs a little. Exactly. I mean, 2016 compared to 2018, 2018, I walked all the damn time <laughs> i wasn't even trying to ride stuff that like yeah i certainly could have gotten up but it was just like nah i don't need to do that and had almost no physical pain until i got to grants new mexico which was i think like two and a half days to the finish or something wow. like that so talk me through um you're on your on your 2016 whenever you're going through all that pain I don't, did you get worried i mean had you put yourself in that your body your body in that type of position before where where you kind of were like oh, i'll just push through it or never quite to that extent that was definitely the furthest i'd gone as far as like really pushing my body to its limits um i was certainly a little bit worried about it but i had gotten advice from uh from jay peterberry actually uh just shortly before the race that everybody everybody gets knee pain everybody gets achilles pain and just ride through it and eventually it'll go away and sure enough i wow. mean it was about the day where it was as bad as i thought it could get and just realizing like if this gets much worse i'm really gonna have to stop or at least take a break or do shorter days or something and then i just woke up one morning and it was fine <laughs> and it didn't bother me for the rest of the ride wow yeah you know, I find that though, like, and in, in, that's one thing you learn in bikepacking. And I haven't done the tour divide or anything that extreme, but um, if you ask things of your body, at first your body's going to say no a lot of times, but you have to just tell your body no, and then yep. eventually your body gets on the program. <laughs> oh, that's that's exactly it. It's like just you get to the point where your body is protesting because it's hard and it hurts, and your body yeah. wants you to stop, but eventually. It's just like, okay, if we're going to keep going, we better at least just make this a little more pleasant on ourselves and you just keep rolling through. It's such a neat truth to understand. Like once you understand that and, and see, here's the, here's the part where I would be careful. Cause I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about is like, I guess you could probably do some real damage. So maybe you should, you know, take, keep that in mind. Yep. But, but I've found, and I mean, I've read books and, and, and talked to enough people that, that there's just levels to it. And, and if you just keep pushing eventually, well, not all the time, but sometimes <laughs> <laughs> let's say sometimes your body yeah. will get with the program. And Absolutely. on this occasion, your body did. Yeah. That time it did. I mean, there's definitely always those thoughts of like, what if I push a little bit further and then do some real damage? Right. Um, thankfully that didn't happen. The one thing that did actually become a persistent issue was um, hand problems mm. after it. So the first time I did it, I was just on, um, like a flared dirt drop. I had the salsa cow chippers or wood chippers. Um, no arrow bars, no nothing. Just, just those, just those bars the whole time. And they beat me up. I mean, I had very little control in my hands. I couldn't like small motor skills, all that kind of stuff. I mean, it was four months, uh, before I could pick up a guitar again. Um, my hands were just that poor. I mean, I was, I went back to work at the bike shop and would have to use two hands to turn spoke nipples when I was truing wheels. Jesus. Uh, just because I couldn't hold anything. I had no hand strength anymore. How long did that last? It was about four two, months. Oh, four months. Yeah, yeah. Yikes. H has there been any, like, lasting uh, pains for that? Or is it flared up again? Or no. Or just that one time? Yeah, it was really just that one time. I mean, my hands are... Well, how did you fix it? Because I bet you didn't do that same setup. So yeah, maybe yeah. That's, yeah, that's a better question. So in 2018, I changed my whole cockpit setup. I went to uh, flat bars with uh, bar ends and arrow bars on there, 
and it made an immense amount of difference. I mean, I had no hand pain whatsoever to speak of during the ride, never lost control of my hands, was always able to use my zippers and all that kind of fun (laughs) stuff. And actually the morning after I finished, I picked up a guitar to play it just to prove to myself that I could do it. Um, So being able to yeah, do small motor skills like a guitar the day after finishing the Tour Divide versus four months after, it was a huge difference. Um, and I just think over that kind of terrain, that kind of miles, I would never desire to be on drop bars again for that kind of time. Yeah. Well, what do you think about drop bars with aero bars? Drop bars with aero bars would certainly help out a whole lot. Um, I think the big thing that ended up hurting me even without the aero bars is just breaking in the drops uh, yeah. uh, cause you're putting a lot of pressure right That's onto your ulnar nerve, um, be it in the hoods or if you're actually in the drops grabbing the brake lever. And for me, that just ends up tearing me up over that kind of time. So having a flat bar set up and a little better grip to it, a little bit more cushion, ended up making a huge difference. Yeah. And I, I think that's still going to be still going to be the way that I te- uh, trench towards that stuff. That said, my other three bikes all have drop bars on them. So yeah, you're not anti drop bar, but no. it does seem, I mean, it seems like the setup you're running now is the more common setup for a tour divide run. Yeah, it it's, I think that is the most common way that, that folks are doing it now. It's like 29 inch, usually rigid, sometimes front suspension, aero bars, flat bars, Although it's also funny because now that all these bike manufacturers are jumping on the gravel, bike packing, tour divide, etc., every single one of them is pushing their stock setup for that type of, of a thing with drop bars. Mm. Every single one. And I don't understand it one bit, but <laughs> that is, you know, I think really what it is is they're hitting the market where the market is. Because a lot of the people cool right now. Yeah, exactly. And a lot bars of people are who so are coming cool right into now. this, you know, from <laughs> more of a road background and looking to get off the beaten path a little bit. And so they've jumped on some gravel and gravel's fun and they want to maybe do a multi-day gravel thing. And (laughs) I think that's where basically it's converting a bunch of people who previously were much more road oriented into this thing. And so they feel much more confident, comfortable with drop bars. And I feel like that's probably why we're seeing that Mm. as a predominant setup. But I think with the majority of people who are actually out there doing it, flat bars is. Well, it's a good thing we're here to set the record straight. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Uh, So let's talk about your 2018 bike setup. I said I don't talk a lot about bikes, but your bike was truly impressive at 34 pounds. Thank you. Like, what the fuck? How did you even do that? It was pretty pretty bare bones single, single speed helps yep single speed definitely you added, shaved some weight off you added aero bars had added, the, all right go ahead yeah um <laughs> yeah single speed had the aero bars and bar ends and all that kind of stuff um tried to com- keep the components pretty light so i had you know carbon whiskey wheels and carbon bars and seat posts and all that kind of stuff um, i was on the salsa wood smoke which was a very lightweight carbon frame that they made. So it was like really... Are you running a medium or a large? Medium. Okay. Yeah. So really shaving all the weight off that I could there. And then just refining my pack really was was a big part of it. It's just like, you know, the, the thing that a lot of folks say on these bike packing trips is you pack your fears. And I think that's that's certainly part of it is like realizing, you know, the things that you can get away without and other things that you can go lighter on and be slightly more uncomfortable at times for slightly longer periods like i didn't have a whole lot in terms of warm clothes i just had just kind of enough to get by and there was definitely some evenings where i was riding after dark and got pretty damn cold and like some mornings that were pretty cold there were 
definitely a few nights sleeping in the bivy that I maybe got an hour's worth of sleep after sitting in there for four hours trying to sleep. Mm. Um, but especially on a single speed, all that weight adds up and you got to be able to turn over those pedals. So keeping it, keeping it as light as possible becomes pretty, pretty damn important. Um, so how do you, how do you feel about that sacrifice? Cause if you're, if you're laying down for four hours and you only get an hour of sleep, you're losing yep. time there. You're losing time. That's not efficient time. Absolutely. So, you know, I'm curious how you, how you balance that or it's an, it's an ever growing. It's, it's yeah, it's always progressing. I mean, yeah. I felt really good about my 2018 setup immediately afterwards to the point where I was like, Oh, this is the way to do it. I wouldn't change anything. And I was planning on racing it again this year and my setup was going to be completely different. Um, not completely different handlebar setup and all that kind of stuff were going to be pretty similar, but my pack was going to be different, I should say. Um, so I think it's, it's kind of an always progressing thing. And sometimes you just have to make those sacrifices knowing that you will be a little bit more uncomfortable here, but that lighter weight's going to help you at the same time. There are some things that like you just don't leave behind because being more comfortable means that you're going to be more efficient and you're going to ride better. Um, the first time 2016, I didn't bring rain pants and that was dumb. Uh, 2018, I feel like I wore my rain pants for the first week. Um, and so it's like just, you know, realizing where, where you can sacrifice stuff and where you're able to be a little bit more comfortable, but not have it really slow you down too much. Um, it's also just being smart about things. Like most of the really cold nights in the bivy were me pushing a little further than I should have and thinking, oh, I'll get over this mountain Mm. pass and then (laughs) getting towards the top and realizing, Either I'm so exhausted that it's going to be dangerous for me to ride down this in the dark, yeah. or I just don't have the energy and you end up sleeping too high or something like that and getting, right. getting cold because of it. So making smart decisions, you can get away with a little bit less gear too. Is there another area that you feel like you cut? I mean, so you got a little cold. Were there other areas where you were willing to sacrifice or you ended up sacrificing or is that the big one? Just not carrying as much warm clothing that that was a big one um water was was another one of the big ones um and that's always one of the big discussions regarding tour divide is you know your water capacity and how much you're going to take with you in 2016 i had uh i think four liters of water on me at all times and realized that i didn't need that much and water's heavy it adds up really quickly so I ended up um, switching my setup a little bit and had just three 26-ounce bottles. Mm-hmm. Um, brought a water filter, which I used, I think, only once. Um, but really the main thing was because I had that knowledge of the route at that point, I could have those three 26-ounce bottles, and then on the longer stretches, I would just grab a water bottle at a gas station, throw it in the jersey pocket, and have that extra. But I wasn't carrying extra at all times, so I was right. able to keep the weight lower because of that. But that also means that at some t- some sections on it, you are going without and you're not doing too well for a bit. Well, let's talk about your 2018 race and maybe, I don't know, may- actually first, what happened in 2017? Oh, just- t- 2017, I just took a year off. Yeah. Um, I did, I was doing a lot of the gravel races that year and then I did a bikepacking race out in South Dakota called the Black Hills Expedition. Mm-hmm. Um, which is actually a super fun one. I think a lot of it's a lot off a lot of folks' radar. Um, definitely well worth checking out. 460 miles, mostly single track, a little bit of forest road, 
immensely tough riding, but that was kind of my focus for, for 2017. It was just doing, doing that one and taking a little bit of time off the tour divide and, uh, refocusing for 2018. Yeah. You feel like you needed, just needed a year <laughs> off. I mean, it's a lot to train for it and yeah. then to do it. And then, well, it sounds like, uh, your 2018, you weren't the physical part afterwards wasn't as bad. But I mean, for some people, oh, yeah. you know, they're going to be in pain for a while. Totally. So. Re- the recovery process can be quite lengthy. Um, I don't feel like I needed that much time off it for that. I think a larger part of it was just not taking, you know, a month away from the bike shop during the middle of summer and that kind of shit. Like easing, easing the burden on other people. <laughs> That's actually a really good point, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, all right. So 2018. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. How did that race go? I mean, obviously we know your results. 15 days, two hours? Uh, 15 days, 18 hours. 18 hours. Mm-hmm. And uh, so four days faster, a good solid four days faster than 16. So I yeah. mean, how did that race go? It It went really well for the most part. I mean, it was pretty much just from the get-go. I felt very, very calm and confident in what I was out there to do and how I was going about it. Um, before the start of the race, uh, I stayed in Calgary, uh, with my buddy, Scott Felter, uh, who does porcelain rocket, uh, it was myself and a good buddy, Seth Wood, who was racing that year, uh, crashed with Scott and he, because he lives in Calgary, very close to Banff, pretty much every year he has somebody staying with him before the start of the tour divide. And he said, we were the calmest people that he'd ever have (laughs) stay with them. And I think a big part of that was like Seth and I were training together and had done it in 2016. And we're just very, very focused and regimented on it. And like, we just knew what we had to do. So there wasn't really any nerves or anything like that going into it. And I think that translated very well for the first few days of the race. It was just, get on the bike, ride, resupply and get back on. And just kind of that focus and knowing exactly, exactly what is at hand and what you're coming up to next was really a big, big game changer for me. Just having that, uh, that experience and also knowing that I put in the time training and that I was in shape for it. And I could, you know, kind of where I could push my body to, um, do you know how much uh, how much weight you save from 2016 to your 2018 setup? I don't. I actually never weighed yeah. my bike for 2016. I, I didn't. <laughs> did. I mean, it sounded like you were like, ah, I just kind of winged it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was, I still had a pretty light setup. I would say I was probably 10 or 15 pounds heavier in 16 oh, though. Wow. So okay. yeah, I was on a steel frame and definitely had a little bit were more. Were you fully rigid me. in 16? I forgot to ask. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Fully and rigid. you were fully rigid in 18 as well. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So was it Louis Sador? Louis Sador won that year. I think he, yeah, he finished in 15 days and two hours. That's what, Correct. Yep. that's what I was thinking. Were you guys piggybacking each other much? Like, did y'all have much interaction? I'm wondering if you were like, I mean, you were, you were, you were within striking distance. If he had a, a oh, bad yeah. something or something went wrong, yeah. I mean, you were right there to win the TD on a single speed. Yeah, we were, we were pretty close for the first like 12 days. Um, we were right there. It was Myself, Lewis, and another Australian who's actually a buddy of Lewis's, uh, Gareth Payless. Um, Gareth and I, Gareth was also on a single speed, and he was also trying to break the single speed record. Uh. Um, so him and I ended up riding together a fair bit. Not Well, not riding together a fair bit, but seeing each other pretty often. Mm-hmm. We kind of bounced back and forth. Um, Lewis got in front of me 15 miles into the start of the race, and I didn't see him until 2019 Colorado trail race when I picked him up in Colorado. 
Um, <laughs> although we did at one point, I passed him um, in just outside of the Wyoming border in Idaho. Um, I pulled a really long day, was just feeling really good, and kept riding and got to uh, a campground just outside of Yellowstone. And uh, there was a guy there taking pictures of all the riders as they were coming through. And I asked him how far ahead Lewis was. And he said, Lewis is sleeping in the bathroom directly behind you. <laughs> this is Bailey. How can I help you? So d- then did you start to talk very quietly? <laughs> um, no, no. And that what? was, you know, I'd considered at that point just staying in the campground. But I had told myself on my way out that day that I was going to make it to Squirrel Creek Ranch. And so I just figured, well, shoot, Lewis is right there sleeping. This was my goal anyway. And it wasn't about like, uh, oh, I'm going to do this and just kind of like mess with them mentally or mm. something like that. Um, this was just like, well, that's where I planned to go and I feel like I can get there. So I just rode to there and, and that was that. Um, because I think that day I'd ridden something like a little over 230 miles. So I ended up sleeping in a little bit and he passed me in the morning while I was sleeping. Um, and that was, that was the last time I got in front of him. Last time I, I heard anything from him. Uh, well, no, that's not entirely true. We ended up very shortly after that, realizing that we had a bunch of mutual friends, um, got tagged in an Instagram post from a friend that said something like the only two people I know, uh, who are racing the tour divide and they're in first and second place. <laughs> so then throughout the rest of the race, we were messaging each other on Instagram, uh, which was pretty great. You know, people are seeing you kind of go back and forth like and be within 20, 30 miles. Lewis. Lewis? <laughs> yeah. And it was always just like the most encouraging stuff. Like, Hey man, you really got through that section really quickly. Way uh, to go. And or like, he was like, I don't know how you've been able to keep up with me on the single speed. <laughs> and we were just going back and forth on stuff like that, yeah. which is really funny because people see you and they think that it's like some kind of cutthroat competition. And I think it certainly can be for some people, but like definitely didn't feel like that. I was just like, I'm going to go out there and ride as much as I can every day. And that's that. I'm just going to do what I can, and I'm not going to worry about where Lewis is at. And it was the same thing with uh, Gareth, because him and I were bouncing back and forth for a long time, and just looking on all the like the Facebook Tour Divide pages and the uh, what's the Dot Watcher um, uh, website and all this stuff. And people have all these narratives about mm-hmm. like what's going on in the race and. You know, Gareth and Bailey are bouncing back and forth, so there must be some kind of, oh, I wonder what words they were exchanging going through the basin (laughs) together and that kind of stuff. Like, no, we were just, like, rolling around talking about music and, like, what people do when they're back at home and not right, racing yeah. what bikes do you for a living. Yeah. yeah, like it was just super yeah. relaxed, friendly stuff. And now I'm good friends with both of those guys. Um, but it's just funny to see people think that there's like got to be some kind of heated something going on. And it's like when you're out there and just like exposed it's 15 days, the, man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there is no way that you what can get a sprint off. <laughs> yeah. You're not that like competitive spirit doesn't get it at a certain point. You realize that, you're like, although, yeah, I want to beat this guy. Like, shit, all you can do is just do what you're doing. And there's nothing else, right. nothing else besides there. So trying to act as if there's some heavy competition between the two of you is not gonna, not gonna make any difference. Okay, saying that though, let me ask you this. I mean, you you came in second. Mm-hmm. I mean, was there any part of you who that was thinking, I want to win this. I want to win this overall. So going into the Tour Divide, I never 
had a consideration of trying to win the overall. That wasn't a goal by any means. Um, in fact, uh, this fella David, who runs a Facebook uh, Facebook Tour Divide page and his own Tour Divide website, you know, puts up his predictions of the race and mentioned me as somebody who was possible to win the overall. Whoa! And I was just like, that's that's not my intentions. That's not what I want to do. My stated goal was to beat the single speed record, which is 15 days and eight hours. Um, but I never considered taking the overall or that that would even be a possibility. Uh, and it wasn't until getting into Island Park, Idaho with Gareth uh, and him looking over all of his time splits that I started to think that like this might actually be something that I could do. And he's looking over these time splits from you know, Jay Peterberry and Neil Belchenko and Josh Cato and Lael Wilcox, Mike Hall, all these big names. And I asked him about it and he tells me whose time is where and all this stuff. I'm like, oh, it's just, you know, so no big deal. Just, you know, whatever. Just looking at random people's time splits, just kind of ingest, making fun of him a little bit. And then he gave me the most serious look I'd ever seen from him. And he just said, well, what the fuck are you trying to do, mate? Like, oh. Okay. Yeah. Good point. I guess like I'm not going for just like some random time. Like I'm trying to do something bigger here. And that was the moment that I'm like, shit, maybe I could actually win this overall. Um, it was never, I didn't try to make it the forefront of my goal at any point. Even once I realized that it was a possibility, I still tried to stay focused on 15 days, eight hours and just staying underneath that. Um, but then the realization of like, oh, I could be the first person to win the overall on a single speed kind of hit. And I think that is something that was my goal for 2020. Um, and I still still hold that for for hopefully 2021 is I'd like to be the first person to win the overall on a single speed. Well, that was my next question. Yeah. <laughs> so so you see it as a possibility, a real. Oh, absolutely. Without a doubt. I, I mean, if I'm going to be just honest and frank about it. I think the overall record could be beat on a single speed. I think over that kind of a distance, it makes very little difference, single speed or geared. Um, and I feel as if somebody could go under the 13 day, 22 hour mark on a single speed. I think it's wow. entirely possible. Wow. Okay. I, <laughs> I hope you do it. <laughs> Thank you. As do I. Uh, I mean, that, that, that's, that's incredible to even think about. I mean, you're kind of blowing my mind. A little bit. I mean, it's really, you know. But, but what, why do you think that? Uh, I just think over that amount of time, it's just, it kind of levels the playing field a little That's bit. A I mean, point. you can, you know, you can have a bike with, you know, a 30 tooth up front and a 52 in the back so that you can climb each and every last hill on there. But at a certain point, you're walking the same speed that you're riding and mm. you're resting other muscles in the walking, um, that you would be using while you're riding. And I just think over that kind of a distance and the terrain that it is, I think the playing field is pretty well leveled out. There's certainly a few sections that, you know, people will think of as like where geared people could make up time. Like I know when going into the basin in Wyoming, Lewis thought he was going to put, a huge distance on me because it's a lot more flat and it's a lot more wide open. And I ended up actually closing in on him through the basin. Um, I had a one 240 something mile day where I was able to actually gain on him through it. And 
I think if you can make up that kind of time on the flatter sections, then there's no reason in the areas that are more technically demanding, you can't, can't be right up there with somebody. Wow. Amazing. Well, with that said, I am very much looking forward to racing, getting back going and watching some dots. Uh, what's next on your, I mean, obviously I know there's a lot of, uh, but I saw Sophie on, uh, was doing an event. And so I don't know if things are going to start yeah. opening or what, but I'm not sure. I know. Yeah. He's got something that he's jumping in on, um, which I'm sure he's going to do an amazing <laughs> job at. Um, Probably for me, I'm, I'm looking at possibly doing the Arizona trail. Um, that's not going to be until October. October so if things it. are a little more normalized by then, I'd like to give it a go. That's and one. the 850. The yeah, uh, 750. Oh, 750. 750. Okay. I think yeah. Um, that's one that definitely intimidates me. As far as I mean, you've got the hike a bike through the Grand Canyon. Um, limited availability of water. It's, I think, a, a one that requires a little bit more planning logistically than the Tour Divide is. You can't just kind of jump in haphazard and, and get through it that when you actually have to really know what you're doing. So that's on my radar. I was also thinking about doing the Black Hills Expedition again. Uh, that's late September. It's going to be one or the other, not both of them. But mm -hmm. figuring that out at this and, point. And do you know if they're going to be going? At it's this point, both of them are saying, you know, fingers crossed. But yeah. nothing nothing too certain either way. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. How do you train? Like, how are you training right now with, okay, you might go do the AZT and it might not happen. Yeah. So right now, I mean, I'm not really training in any particular way. I'm still trying to go out and do big rides just because I enjoy it, but I'm not putting in any particular, particular rides for it. Um, when I was training more focused for like Tour Divide, it was basically trying to do two to 250 miles a week um, and go out on rides either really early in the morning when I didn't want to get out of bed or going on long rides after work when mm -hmm. I was also exhausted. So like uh, my buddy Seth Wood and I were working at District Bicycles in Stillwater, Oklahoma together and we would work you know, eight hour shift and then go ride 100, 120 miles and camp out and then go to work the next day. Mm. Um, and I think that was, you know, any, you could ride 100, 120 miles, but the the mental preparation for that that I right. think was the big thing is that we would go out and do these kind of things when we didn't want to be riding. Right. When right. it would be much easier to just go home and eat a pizza and chill. Yeah, you've been working on bikes, dealing with customers all day. You're tired. You want a pizza and a beer or whatever yeah. it is. Yeah, yeah. Like, nope, you get to ride 120 yeah. miles. We're we're doing a century <laughs> and we're sleeping in the dirt. Um, and I think that's one of the biggest things that I've that I do to prepare for these things. And also while I'm training for the events. I pretty much always have my bike loaded regardless mm. of if I'm just doing a day ride or if I'm sleeping out or not just so having that weight on there where it's distributed through the bike all that becomes normal I've never understood why people train on a lightweight bike oh it's it's just I, the silliest thing it's yeah. I don't get it there's so many people at the start of all these races and like the tour divide is a really great example of it where People have put in all the time training and they've, you know, packed their bike and tried different pack setups, but they haven't ridden with it like that. And the first 15, 20 miles of most all these bikes, yeah, you just see, it's just like <laughs> bike bags deploying all over the place. It's like a yard sale. Oh, it's so ridiculous. You're like, oh, this is your first time actually riding it like that. Yeah. Uh, and I think one of the most important things is just familiarizing yourself with it, even if it's just like. So you know where all your gear goes so you can pack up efficiently in the morning. Just For like sure. always having that on you becoming like that becoming the norm is 
immensely important. Yeah. No, good tip. Good tip. <laughs> Definitely use your shit. Know where it is. Ride your bike with it before you go do the tour divide. Yeah. And like sleep outside <laughs> often. Once, yeah. Once yeah. <laughs> well, hell, you didn't do much training for your 2016 one. So I mean, uh, a lot of gravel. Yeah. A lot of gravel, but I definitely wasn't training in any kind of terrain that was like too specific towards that but your shit wasn't flying off at the beginning <laughs> no no but i think that came from like having a good amount of experience with like touring and all that kind of yeah, stuff yeah, beforehand yeah, sure. i already had had that part of it like pretty well figured out well um i just want to say congratulations i haven't met you or congratulations <laughs> in 2018 but congratulations that's Thanks, big Patrick. i'm excited to watch you race a lot of people race i mean there's so that's kind of the cool thing about what's going on is that there's a lot of really good people oh, and it, it makes it really exciting. And also like how, I mean, I have a podcast or several Lewis has a podcast. Now there's, there's, there's several, um, and you're seeing the media coverage and, and being able to talk to the athletes and people doing it, actually yeah. find out what's going on. That's why I want to start a podcast. When I did this, there wasn't a podcast out there. Right. And I was like, I want to, like, I want to talk to these people and like, Oh, yeah. what's really going on because i'm just watching dots and you you maybe someone will do an update on facebook and mm -hmm. some people are good at instagram lives or something but other than that yeah. you just don't really know oh yeah i mean when i first started experimenting with bike packing just in general it was like you had cass's old blog while out riding mm -hmm. um there was no bikepacking.com there was well you had uh the mike uh dion film yep you know yeah, that, yeah, was, that was that was like you had to watch that <laughs> But like there was so little information out there and like you now it's like you can't scroll through Instagram without seeing a new bike bag manufacturer mm -hmm. or somebody else doing a tutorial on how to set up this, that or the other. But like there was a long time where you just didn't have that. And now between like your podcast and uh, Justin Dubois, podcast, yeah, Justin Dubois, yeah, the desolationist, desolationist. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, if, you know, other folks doing that and all the websites that are dedicated to it. There's so much information. And there's so much going on that you can really kind of get a better idea of what's going on and like how people experience the race and the different people who are out there doing it as well. Uh, again, congratulations. Thank you for letting me come into your shop. Uh, we've been kind of going in and out with customers, so it's been, <laughs> but I think we did pretty good. I think we, I think we covered most things. If there's uh, anything that people feel like we missed halfway through, Sorry, you're out of luck. <laughs> I'll be back to do it again. <laughs> there we S go. Send in your questions. And yeah, perfect. Or maybe perfect. you start a podcast and you come in and interview <laughs> Bailey. There you go. There you <laughs> <I'm> go. <kidding. laughs> uh, what if you want to find you on Instagram or, or social media? What do you want to throw out? Anything like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. On uh, Instagram, the shop's Instagram is just Sincere Cycles. My own personal is Bailey Jean Newbury. Um, also got both of those up on the Facebooks. Uh, that's about it. I'm not not TikToking or Snapchatting or none of that stuff. But uh, yeah, uh, well, sweet man, congratulations with everything so far, and wish you continued success in the future, both with your shop and with your racing, man. Looking forward to seeing it, and you might have a new Santa Fe resident here one day pretty soon. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Well, hey, thanks for taking the time. It's great to meet you, man. All right, man. Have a good one. All right, all right. Thanks again to Bailey Newberry for coming on. Really cool dude and uh, kind of bummed. Not kind of bummed. I'm really bummed I didn't get a chance to ride with him. Uh, he, I went out on an overnighter the night before, and he was going out the next day, and our, our schedules just, just didn't align. But uh, that'll just give me a reason to go back. And I don't know about y'all, but after the James Mark Hayden 
interview and now this Bailey Newberry interview back to back, I've really got the racing bug and it sucks because there's no races. Everything's canceled. I just heard today or saw today that, uh, oh shit. Well, oh, Silk Road was canceled today. Um, or at least I found out about it today, which is a bummer. And I'm sure we'll see many, many others that just don't kick off. Um, which is sad, but it is what it is. But these interviews got me really excited to see some dots again. So hopefully we'll be back to that sooner rather than later. But until then, I'm hoping that you're enjoying these interviews. And as always, do not forget, very important. Are you listening? Are you listening? Great. Do me a favor. Go ride your damn bike. You load up your bike, you ride away from home. You could be with your friends or you could be alone. You ride for a day or maybe more. You just love being in the great outdoors. Everything you need is strapped to your bars, including that new pillow you got from Santa Claus. And then you think, oh shit to yourself. You left that super lightweight tent on the living room shelf. Bikes. 